Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. All right. And it says we're now recording. It says Slate Slow Burn. Eight seconds. Here we go. Stephen Engelberg is the editor-in-chief of ProPublica. Back in 2001, he was the investigations editor for The New York Times. One of his reporters was a Times veteran named Judith Miller. Maybe a couple of weeks after July 4th, 2001, Judy came to my desk and she said, I've got an amazing story. We've got to go. We've got to go fast. This is really astounding stuff. And I said, okay, okay, what what do you got? What she had did sound amazing. An intercept of a conversation between two members of Al-Qaeda. And the first guy says something along the lines of, it's really a shame the United States did not retaliate for the attack on the USS Cole, which was an American ship that had been attacked by a uh, sort of suicide bombing dinghy. And then the second guy says, well... Don't worry, we're planning something so big they're going to have to retaliate. Miller had been covering Islamic extremism for years. It seemed like she might have a huge scoop. Plans by known terrorists to launch a major attack against the United States. Engelberg was interested. But first he needed to know where the story came from. So what do we know? I mean, who are these two guys? And she said, my source doesn't seem to know. Where are they? What country are they? Are they high level, low level? Are they just two guys talking, you know, in a bar? Of course, they're Al-Qaeda. They're not in a bar, but I was sort of speaking metaphorically. Miller didn't have those answers, but said she'd try to find out more. She came back and said, I just can't get any more detail on this. This is what we've got. Can we write a story? And I said, Judy, I just don't see how. I said, I I see paragraphs one and maybe two, but what's paragraphs three, four, and five? we, We can't do it. The story never ran. Two months later... Al-Qaeda hijacked four planes and killed 3,000 people. And of course, you know, after 9-1-1, we both sort of at some point caught our breath and talked about this and sort of thought, wow, what if we had done the story? You know, would it have changed history? Were they really on to this thing? Was it just a coincidence? What was it? And do you feel like if you'd let her run that story, Bush might have paid more attention to that baby? <laughs> Who knows? You know, I just didn't think we had enough. There are two ways to think about the decision to spike that story. The first, this is exactly how journalism is supposed to work. An aggressive reporter got a tantalizing bit of information. A careful editor pushed back to make sure it was properly sourced. It turned out the story just wasn't there. So the New York Times didn't publish it, and the paper's journalistic standards were upheld. The second way to think about it, 
the New York Times could have had one of the biggest scoops in history if they'd pushed harder to get it. Or, maybe, if they'd gone to press with something that wasn't 100% buttoned up. You can even imagine a scenario where the paper prints a story and helps prevent the 9-11 attacks. Journalists have to balance two competing ideas. Get the biggest story you can before the competition does, but also make sure that what you're publishing is true. Sometimes they end up being cautious, and big news never makes it into the paper. Sometimes they're aggressive, and that can cause its own set of problems. In the run-up to the Iraq War, almost no one was more aggressive than Judith Miller. Why did I believe the people I believed? Why did I believe the people who talked to me and not the people who wouldn't? (laughs) Because these people, by and large, not all of them, but most of them, had been the very same people who were warning us about Al-Qaeda and 9-11. I had every reason to believe them because they had been right before. I got it wrong. I got it wrong because I believed people who also believed themselves. This is Slow Burn. I'm your host, Noreen Malone. If you read the New York Times in 2002 and 2003, you probably believed the Iraqis had weapons of mass destruction. In the year before the invasion of Iraq, the media mostly backed the administration's narrative about WMD, even when the evidence was thin. So how did the press get the question of WMDs so wrong? Why did so many reporters end up looking so credulous? And why was Judith Miller the one who took the fall? This is Episode 7, Judy. Hi, I hope you've been enjoying listening to Slow Burn. The last two episodes of this season are available only to Slate Plus members. You can sign up by going to slate.com slash slow burn or clicking on the link in the show notes. It's only $15 for your first three months. With your subscription, you also get access to bonus Slow Burn Plus episodes with extra interviews and stories from behind the scenes. And your membership lets you listen to every Slate show ad-free, not to mention gives you unlimited access to Slate's website. So to hear the rest of this season of Slow Burn and become a member, go to slate.com slash slow burn or click the link in the episode notes. Thanks for supporting our work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.